Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is no exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in a spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Life is changing in Australia because the pub is shut. Sucked in, fellas. I actually find it gobsmacked. I will call it a personal nightmare. Tell the Prime Minister to go and get... It is changing all around the world. I accept your nomination. The authority is total. And I rejected that approach. It's all about acknowledging how far we've come. He's all tip and no iceberg. Like a really scary wooden puppet. He was drunk. That's not true. Not now, not ever. You're a classic space invader. A social climbing sycophant. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. (laughs) Hey, Mark Kenny here with Democracy Sausage Extra, and I'm joined today by Professor Frank Bongiorno, historian, writer, and head of the ANU School of History. And I thought it would be useful to talk together with Frank today about Trumpism in Australia, because, well, it's been argued that Trumpism will remain in politics for a lot longer than the man himself. Of course, he was defeated at the ballot box in November, not that he accepted the result. A month month ago or so, I argued in a piece for the conversation that elements of Trumpism have affected the machinery of our politics. And in a piece published in the last day or two, Frank has argued a different, more nuanced line about Morrison uh, and why he is not, at least in any sort of direct sense, a manifestation of Trumpism. So I thought it'd be good to kind of, you know, tease out these ideas. They're not necessarily, uh, Frank... um, we're not arguing different things. We're talking about, I suppose, different elements of Trumpism. But let's let's go to your piece because you begin by saying uh, that uh, Australia has emerged perhaps better from the Trump period than than others, and then might have been expected. Yes, I suppose it's a comment on COVID in a way, and perhaps the state of the economy as well. I mean, I actually went back to earlier things I'd said and written. On this, and I actually did describe Scott Morrison about a year ago as a, or his prime ministership at least, as a creature of the Trump era. Um, uh, so it's not, I don't think we are at odds actually. Um, and that was during the, you know, the sports rorts affair. Um, so it was looking at the very issue that I know you've also written on in relation to this, and that's, you know, accountability and especially ministerial and prime ministerial accountability. Um, Although it, it's interesting, even there, although I could see the ways in which, you know, the Trump era um, had had its effects on, on, on um, you know, the kinds of techniques, I suppose, that politicians have been using to, to get out of accountability, 
I actually saw the turning point as the Howard era and particularly the mm. first Howard government. I thought that had been a critical moment really in, in the kind of winding back of, of ministerial accountability when, when, particularly when scandals broke. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's a really interesting point because we, in in a way, we're talking about two different things. I mean, your piece is is sort of talking about um, Trumpist politics, Trumpist ideology, I suppose, uh, populism, uh, and uh, you know, quite cynical manipulation of um, of popular ideas, really, for and, and you know, kind of anti elitism, attacking mm. the media, and these sorts of things. Uh, and I was talking. Primarily, I suppose, about as you so well, you know, well described it just then, kind of technique in politics. But let's go back to that point you're making there about um, about the Howard era, because one thing I would certainly concede uh, right up front is that Trump didn't come along and change our politics. In fact, I don't think you could even say that he did that in the U.S. What he came along and did was kind of turbocharged a number of things. He accelerated. Uh, rather wantonly, um, uh, a range of pretty negative characteristics. So it's true to say that declining levels of ministerial accountability, ministerial standards, uh, was certainly uh, evident in our politics before the you know before 2016 and the advent of Donald Trump. You, you tagged the Howard era just then as the sort of turning point. Probably it's it's been a you know a kind of a, a gradual movement over a period of time, but mm. how it was interesting, wasn't it? Because he came in in 1996, he'd made a big virtue of having tough ministerial standards, and in that first year, he lost a swag of ministers, didn't he, to um, breaches of the ministerial code, and and so it is accurate in a way to say that there was a turning point because at a after after a twelve months of that and the government looking like it was falling apart, he decided there was another way. Yeah, look, I think it was what seven ministers in about fifteen months, and mm. uh, yeah, it was a sparkling um, ministerial code of conduct that that um, was clearly um, doing the, the government a lot of damage because it looked like it was in kind of perpetual scandal or crisis mode. And you know, I think at, at that points, um, you, you got the development of a quite different approach to ministerial accountability and ministerial scandal and, you know, look at its fruits in the early 2000s. I mean, the, the, I mean, the Australian Wheat Board scandal is probably the worst corruption scandal in Australian history. Um, and who would that have taken out of commission, the foreign minister? Well, it's interesting that, yeah, no ministers seem to be uh, no, held but accountable, had, 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 but I imagine Downer. I mean, yeah. uh, uh, it, it looked like an issue of foreign policy um, um, you know, leaving aside the fact that there were complications, obviously it wasn't perhaps a, um, a direct DFAT matter, but clearly DFAT had had some involvement. Um, and the Department but, of Agriculture as well and it, trade possibly. Sure. There were a whole lot of, you know, kind of decisions that were being made that were subsequently pretty hard to defend, but there was a lot of complexity in that case as well, which is often a, a defence for, for governments and increasingly so as we've seen these ministerial standards decline. Whenever something's very complicated, it's a, it's you, 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 if you're a government, you start off with some level of advantage because people don't really get it, um, they don't stay with it long enough. Uh, it's easy to kind of bamboozle people with uh, you know alternative versions and and uh, and detail. 
Yeah, I mean, I think more complicated stories uh, do provide a, a level of protection, don't they? But, you know, the AWB affair wasn't the only one of those years. There's not, not, nothing terribly complicated about deporting an Australian citizen because uh, uh, you think they're a, a, an illegal entry um, mm. asylum seeker, and, and we saw that. And again, uh, no minister paid the price uh, for that. Um, the, the Mohammed Hanif affair where... Uh, again, a man who was clearly innocent was accused of being a terrorist and subjected to uh, the, the the force of, of law and so on. Um, so there were a whole series of these, I think, that, that were very much a product of a Too different valuable. a different approach to to accountability. And I think that has continued really down to the present day, and, and yeah, it provides a stark contrast with uh, certainly the, the very strict standards, say, under Malcolm Fraser coming out of the Whitlam era, and then I think the pretty strict standards of the Hawke era, and, and indeed even the Keating Prime Ministership, which saw some ministers, uh, well, in the obvious point of comparisons, the the fate of... Um, of um, uh, of uh, Ross Kelly over over a, a kind of sports rewards affair as well, the so-called and whiteboard the affair, whiteboard yeah. affair, um, uh, but also um, uh, uh, Graham Richardson. I mean, there there were also casualties in those years, but I think we've we've got very different standards today, and I think in a lot of ways they'll bequeath more by developments during the Howard era than you know the, the more recent um, uh, impact of Trump. To what extent do you put it down to the professionalization of politics and the growth of the ministerial office you know so that so there's kind of almost like a machinery there for swinging into action and defending a minister in a moment like that and the default position is is, is very much survival whereas I think it it is probably fair to say without being too dewy-eyed about it that the default position, before that was was resignation almost it was or at least standing down if there was a serious issue that went to public reasonable public confidence in the discharge of uh, official responsibilities then that appearance was a significant enough issue in itself to at least have a minister considering his or her position and a prime minister considering whether to require the resignation of a minister Whereas now it seems to me that the ministerial office is far more dominant than was the case in the past. Departmental uh, um, officials uh, sort of take a back seat a lot of the time. Departmental Mm. officials behave a bit more like uh, ministerial officers as well because there's a much clearer representation of what the minister wants, what sort of information he or she wants at any given time. So I'm wondering whether all of this machinery is kind of geared towards defending, and when you think about it, this is a not a very ideal situation, our representatives defending themselves against us <laughs> in a moment of uh, um, being revealed as having, you know, buggered something up. Yeah, I mean, I imagine that the, the you know, massive growth of, of staffers has had that kind of effect. I mean, clearly it's it's confused the lines of responsibility in some ways. It's provided, yeah, a group of highly active individuals who aren't subject to the same accountabilities as, as for instance, public servants or indeed politicians and ministers. I think of Senate estimates being a, a good example of that. I remember there was a, a book that came out, I think, during the the Howard era from a political science scientist or a couple of political scientists, I think, with the title Don't Tell the Minister, um, which was, you know, um, discussing the, the role of ministerial um, staffers, their, their private offices. And, you know, clearly, in fact, we're seeing a, a scandal um, 
a very uh, bad scandal unfolding in in recent days over the um, alleged rape that is mm. you know I think you know um, one interpretation of that that I've already seen is is that you know in a sense it's it's um, a part of that larger story of the really ambiguous accountability of 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 staffers in in you know um, parliamentary and ministerial affairs you know it used to be the the I mean it was an awkward Thing to uh, to police sometimes because it seemed you know it could seem egregiously unfair. But the, the principle used to be that the minister was responsible for his or her departmental officials uh, for decisions and mistakes that are made there. Now um, you know obviously taken in the most pure sense that meant you could literally be responsible for things that you had no knowledge of, and there had to be some sort of reasonable level of um, uh, I guess discretion applied there. Um, but depending on how egregious the problem was, um, it still might mean a minister should go because the assumption was, well, you're the parliamentary representative, you're the executive in charge of this, and it's your job to know. So if you don't know, the fact of not knowing is a failure as well as whatever the sort of primary mistake is. Now we have a situation, it seems, where not knowing, uh, and it may be the case in the scandal you're just talking about, this rape allegation, uh, where not knowing is part of the part of the sort of forward defence in relation to a scandal like this. So, as you say, don't tell the minister. Yeah, kind of a strategic unknowing. Yeah. Um, yeah and how can a minister, yeah. if a minister doesn't know, but the minister's office does know, and the minister's office exists in that kind of legal grey area, not accountable to Parliament mm. and not accountable to the Public Service Act, where is the accountability then? Yeah, well, there isn't any, I guess. I mean, and yes, can you can you say that the minister knew? In fact, the phraseology that you see in contemporary journalism makes that distinction, doesn't it? Did the minister's office know? Did the prime minister's office know? There's no assumption that, um, uh, you know, that if the prime minister's office or the minister's office did know, that that technically means that, you know, you would consider the prime minister or minister to have known. No, no one makes that kind of jump anymore because mm. of those kinds of distinctions that have emerged with, you know, the, the, the exponential growth, really, of that layer of, of governance. Yeah, um, and, and, the, yeah. and the argument was always that, that it wasn't a grey area. The ministerial staff were an extension of the minister. So the mm. reason they weren't sort of under the direction of the Public Service Commission or the departmental head was because they fell kind of vicariously under the responsibility umbrella of the minister. And yet we see in some of these moments of uh, crisis that they also happen to be kind of beyond reach there too. You know, the ministerial advisor, perhaps even the chief of staff in some circumstances, knew about a given thing the minister or the prime minister didn't, and that becomes the defence. And we see it repeated mm. in Parliament. Again and again, yeah. Mm. But, I mean, in, in a sense, these are all sort of issues around our system of you know, Westminster government as it's emerged. Um, you know, Trumpism is a different business again, isn't it, around its account? It's, it's the brazenness, I suppose. Well, well, Trumpism is about just denying yeah, even yeah, when it's, yeah. it's, it's blatantly obvious, yeah. when it's hit you in the face, the, the facts. Yeah. You just assert a set of alternative facts, as yeah. we know, uh, was one of the great linguistic mm. inventions, of, uh, in, um, yeah, inventions of the uh, early Trump period, right from the, the, the get-go, actually, from, yeah. the, from the inauguration uh, 
the crowd at Trump's inauguration, which was you know supposedly the biggest ever, even when the photos showed that's not to be the case, but it just kept getting asserted anyway. And after a while, you know, to it to his supporters, it's a fact. Now let's let's get back to that sort of Trumpism thing because I think you you make a very good case that. Um, and some people will, will, some listeners will probably, you know, uh, disagree with this or might rankle them initially. But I think you make a very good point that Morrison is not like Trump in a lot of key ways. There are a couple of moments where he might, you might say that he's kind of lent into into Trumpism, and there may be, as I've argued, sort of technique questions where that you know that we've just been discussing where 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 Trumpism affects our politics. But talk to this idea that Morrison is is different, that he's less extreme. Yes, I mean, I think the closest flirtation with Trumpism really occurred uh, towards the end of 2019. So if you like, you know, in the months leading up to the bushfires and the and the the pandemic, and he, he visited the United the United States in September. It was what early September, I think, in in 2019. Mm. And he's kind of lionised, really, isn't he, by Trump? And they he appears at what looks almost like a, a MAGA rally, um, mm. which was the, the the opening of the famous box factory, you know, Anthony Pratt's box factory in Ohio. And um, you know, there were plenty of opportunities for 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 you know photographs and and footage and all the rest of it with Trump. And he was given the honour of a, of, of a, a official dinner and so on. Which was we were all told how rare it was, and 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 so on and so forth. This was the one where his pastor was um, <laughs> not allowed to go, wasn't it? I can't remember that. What was the story? Yeah, that was when, uh, uh, this is Scott Morrison's. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure if pastor is the right term. Oh yes, yes, yes. Um, for for um, Hillsong, yes, yeah. indeed. Yeah, there yeah. was a bit of a a scandal. I mean, yeah. I and he was it? he was yeah. quietly vetoed by the mm. White House. Uh, yeah, I thought, yeah. wow, too mad even for them. Yeah, I wonder what the stuff we'll ever find out the story behind the veto. But, um, but yes, there, there was. It had to do with yeah. the guy's father and some, uh, you know, some nefarious dealings. Yeah, perhaps. they'd done um, a bit of checking. But anyway, he comes back the next month in October and he, he gives that lecture to the Lowy Institute in which he complains about negative globalism. And mm. it, it sounds like, you know, a kind of populist, right-wing nationalist, anti-globalist, you know, sort of Steve Bannon, Donald Trump kind of thing. And um, it was of a piece with a, with a speech he gave when he was in the US, which I thought was rather injudicious and and a bit Trump-like too, which mm. was sort of lecturing China from, from US shores. And, mm. you know, given the polarities of the world and the, the, the heat in, in things, it just seemed to me to be perhaps... Um, a bit more brazen to do that from US soil, to, especially given the charge that, you know, Australia is kind of, you know, the deputy sheriff, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And here we were. So the, you're right, he comes back. He's already kind of revved, revved these things up. He's been at a, the, the Ohio rally, which is, you know, the way it was reported by most people. It was it had the feel of, feel of a Trump rally and prime ministers, uh, heads of state, ought not to get dragged into the domestic politics of other mm. countries, even powerful ones. Uh, and he comes back and he gives that Lowy speech and he talks about negative globalism that did have that feeling that it was uh, that it was out of the that, that same Trump playbook. It did, and, and I think to me that's the period where he really flirts with this. I mean, Morrison. I mean, the term I used in the article is he's a political entrepreneur. I mean, mm. from the moment he won the prime ministership 
uh, in uh, 2018, he, he was looking for ways forward. How can I um, survive this moment and move on to the next one in, in a way that will um, yield advantages to me. And, and you can remember the, the kinds of things he went through in the early days. There were, you know, there was pins in strawberries. There was, uh, I mean, it seems a decade ago, doesn't it? Um, there was the, the reopening of Christmas Island. I mean, he was clearly looking for, for, for ways, um, uh, you know, in, in, in which he could mobilize the kind of support he would need to, to win the next election to shore up his own support. And, and I, I suppose his flirtation with Trumpism needs to be seen in that sort of context. You know, here is a, a political possibility. Uh, is there a, a way in which this can be adapted? To Australian uh, circumstances that will will provide political advantages, and um, it turned out to be a kind of um, a false turn, if you like, or a cul-de-sac, because he was suddenly faced with you know a whole range of issues for which it was basically useless. I mean, there were sports rorts, there was obviously his deeply damaging performance during the, the, the bushfires of that summer, and then, of course, the biggest of them all, really, the, the, the pandemic, which in turn, of course, also discredited and you know, arguably destroyed or helped destroy anyway Trump's own presidency. So, you know, the, the I suppose the distinctions and differences um, from yeah, the perspective of early 2021 do seem to me to be stronger than the resemblances, allowing for the fact that, you know, there has been clearly um, resonance in Australia um, of of the Trump era in all sorts of ways. Uh, in, in its, I'm thinking of domestic politics. Obviously, anything that's happening in American politics has implications for Australia in terms of its role in the world. But I'm thinking of the domestic kind of resonance. And, yeah, I mean, I would have thought a figure like Peter Dutton, um, you know, was clearly also experimenting with certain kind of Trumpist ways of, of speaking publicly. Um, we could talk about some of those examples. Well, well let's do that. Let's yeah. take a quick break there and come back and yeah. talk about, about Dutton and, and I, I think also about some of the other people in the, in the coalition mm. because, as you say, Trumpism uh, has has kind of seeped into, mm. uh, into the conservative side and into the right of politics in Australia, mm. including the coalition, even if it hasn't, uh, you know, sort of mm. directly... Um, influenced uh, all of the decisions of the Prime Minister, for example. So let's take a break and come back in just a moment. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week, we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive, and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Okay, welcome back. Now, 
uh, Frank, you were talking about, you mentioned Peter Dutton just before the break. Dutton is an interesting figure, isn't he? Because he's, uh, you know, within the context of the government, its most senior conservative figure now. And you say that he actually exhibited some Trumpist-like elements uh, at certain points, and you've listed some of those out in the piece. Yeah, I mean, the ones that, I'm sure I'm forgetting some, but the ones that do spring to mind were, I mean, one of them was November 2016, so a couple of weeks after the the election of Trump, which was his complaint about the Fraser government having uh, allowed Lebanese Muslims to enter the country as if this was the, the origins of some social or crime problem in the present, which mm. struck mm. me as a you know pretty dirty form of, of political intervention, really, um, to, to sort of target a group in that way. And yeah. there were a series of other things. I mean, there was the, the famous claim in, what was it? It was early 2018, um, hope I'm getting the dates right. I should be. That's what historians are meant to be able to do. But we actually have really bad memories sometimes. But I think it was very early in 2018. That was the one where people in Melbourne were too frightened to go out to restaurants because uh, of African street gangs. So, um, th- My were- favourite moment in that, just for, just for um, a moment of levity, is, is that Christopher Pine, who at that stage was still a minister, was, was actually asked about it. You know, Pine's kind of very punchy sort of... Um, uh, presentational style, very feisty and, and, and kind of bemused often. We miss him in some ways. Um, he, uh, he was asked about this at the, at the end of a doorstop. I think he was in, in doorstop press conference. He might have been in Melbourne. and he, It was on something else, of course. This wasn't – the question didn't really relate to Pine's uh, uh, portfolio in any way. And, and someone's – one of the reporters said, uh, are, are you, um, Mr Pine, are you afraid to go out for, for dinner in Melbourne? And he looked at him and said, no, why should I be? <laughs> <laughs> With a sort of a you know strange look on his face, <laughs> uh, yeah. I spoke to him afterwards. He said, "Well, I didn't know anything about that." He did. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I, you could just tell from that moment how absurd it was, you know, yeah. as a proposition, uh, because on first you, you got what you got from mm. Pine at that moment was first blush hearing of this ridiculous idea that Melbournians were, you know, <laughs> quaking in their boots and hiding in their homes. I mean, as it happened, they'd end up hiding in their homes from something else. Something else, sort yeah. Of virus. But uh, yeah. anyway, go on. Yeah. And, well, there were those. And then there was, um, you know, he's, he's apparent championing of, of white South African farmers yes, as victims yeah. of genocide, which I gather is a, a cause that the far right elsewhere has sort of taken up from time to time. Um so that there are a whole range of these things. And, yes, it is easy to sort of, I guess, say that, you know, there were horses that wouldn't or didn't run, and that's probably true for the most part. They generally made him look a bit foolish. But he went within five votes, didn't he, of winning Well, see, that's the, the culmination of this, and yeah. it's an interesting point you make because this culminates. You're talking about starting that, that first example comes, you know, shortly after the election of the Trump administration, mm. right, so in 2016, um, and in 2018, we see a challenge to Malcolm Turnbull's prime ministership, and it's from Dutton. Yeah. And as you say, he comes pretty close. I think it was, what, seven votes with 38, 38 five, 45? I think it was five in the end. I mean, it was 38-45 was the... So there was against, a spill. Yeah, that was against, yeah, so he's 38-45 against, against Turnbull, Turnbull and then five votes and then against... Turnbull stipulated yeah. Yeah, yeah. later in that, that, yeah. that terrible, chaotic week in which yeah. his leadership you know, ended. Mm. Turnbull said at one point, you know, when he was trying to steer them down, he said he wouldn't have a, um, a another spill in that same week unless there were signatures. 
And if there were enough signatures to warrant a spill, then he would regard that as tantamount to a no-confidence vote and would not stand, which is actually then what happened, right? So then the whole Mm. debate starts about whether some Morrison supporters actually put their their names down on that, um, Mm. that, you know, petition for a spill and then switch back to Morrison in the actual vote because, as you say, Mm. then Morrison defeats... Turnbull's no longer in it because mm. the second ballot, uh, it's it's all it's all about Morrison and and. Mm. Um, but it's and, narrow. It's still Bishop. narrow. It's still very narrow um, on the last vote. And yeah. you know, uh, uh, clearly Dutton thought he was in with a, a show. Mm. Um, you know, this wasn't some sort of rank outsider. Um, so, I mean, the Turnbull. Uh, Cor- Corbyn Bib- thought he was uh, he was on the right horse. <laughs> That's right. Corbyn thought he was. I he mean, ter- the, ter- the new climate change evangelism. Indeed, in yeah. yeah. I mean, Turnbull's hilarious on this in his memoir, um, where you know he sort of says he kind of written off the idea that that Dutton would ever be a contender for the, the prime ministership because he thought he'd have more self insight. I guess was the general message. <laughs> that he got. It was a very backhanded sort of comment. Yeah, it's rich um, coming from yeah, I mean, I only say that, and I don't say that with any uh, any malice. I, I think it's pretty hard for me. I've uh, worked, you know, interviewed and, and sort of reported on, I don't know, six prime ministers, and, and uh, I don't think, you know, sort of <laughs> humble insight has been a strength of any of them, to be honest. No, um, certainly not Malcolm, but uh, it's, yeah, I mean, that, I think, that coincidence, what's well, coincidence is the word, but the, the, that alignment of stars that you get in, in 2016 with Brexit, um, mm. and then particularly Trump, and then, you know, Turnbull's near defeat at the, the Australian election for that year. I mean, th- th- they and, are and kind of. And, Turn, and Turnbull is, ro- yeah, that's right. Yeah. The kind, you can see all that as, as part of a, of a, of a general drift. And Turnbull yeah. ends up kind of writing a government that has this, you know, kind of um, rebellious core in its backbench who are, you know, a, a bunch of, you know, I think you could say quite strongly populist-influenced right-wingers who are opposed in a lot of ways to everything that Malcolm stands for as far as they can see, you know. He's urbane yeah. and educated and and, um, and and moderate and, you know, very much a, 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 a supporter of the system and they are kind of... You know they're into this sort of anti anti elite kind of, in some cases, white supremacy or or, or kind of um, you know certainly a right wing populism. I think that's the context that that you know for Australian Trumpism really. Mm. Um, it, it's you know that um, alignment of stars in two thousand and and sixteen. Um, of course, it's um, worsened for, for for Turnbull by the whole. Section forty four saga, yeah, of which of course increases his his vulnerability, and he's always in this situation where, you know, he and indeed no one else are, are quite sure whether they're mad enough or mad enough with him to actually bring down his government. Um, but it does result in, for example, him going, you know, through this torturous process with the National Energy Guarantee to try and get a workable energy policy up, takes it to the party room twice, but then mm-hmm. never quite takes it to the floor of parliament because of this threat that some of these people, members of the government's own majority, 
are going to cross the floor. Yeah, so he, he can get a majority in Parliament because he would have probably had Labor support. He would have had Labor support, and, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, although, although, and yeah. Labor says that now, although they yeah. were pretty Delphic about it at the time. Yeah, yeah, but it would have probably, you know, led to the disintegration of his of his government. Then, of course, he's got the National Party sitting there too. And, I mean, the other sort of uh, rather, it has to be said, um, incompetent experimenter in Trumpism is, is Barnaby Joyce. I mean, that not very well-written book uh, or memoir or autobiography or whatever you want to call it that he, he brought out. This is the one which when he first spoke about it, and I remember uh, when he first spoke about it, this is when he was actually resigning over the um, the affair with his uh, his media advisor, and he did a uh, sort of a rambling press conference in Armadale, I think, and um, he, um, he kept talking about the Weatherboard Nine. Yeah, and, it. you know, people think of the Barley Nine and I haven't heard of the Weatherboard Nine. <laughs> Turns out it was Weatherboard and Iron. Iron, that's right. <laughs> and it was <laughs> – he said it about six or seven times and people were going, what, what's this what the hell is he talking you about? Know? Yeah. Anyway, I did uh, I did struggle through the weather, Weatherboard As and I did. Iron. And yeah. Indeed, at one stage I was down to do a um, – one of those meet the author uh, events with, <laughs> with, with the Barnaby and uh, I had – I think it's fair to say, and I'm just confide here, and you know, just to you, that I had, I was slightly conflicted about this, and then it didn't happen because there was, I think, a collapse in the government at that time, and, uh, and that was that. That was it. Mm. Yeah. Um, well, yes, it's it's not a great book, but one of the things that no, suggested to me is that if this guy uh, ever came back. Uh, that, that it was going to be a kind of milk and water Trumpism. I mean, you know, it was full of references to poor whites yeah. and, 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 you know, just the whole sense of white grievance that, mm. that pervades the book, including his own, it has to be said. Um, it, it, I mean, that's, it's quite striking. It seemed to me that, that, yeah, it was a kind of not a pretty inept, I suppose, effort to articulate, you know, a kind of Trumpist vision in Australia. And also all its references to, you know, its basic economic illiteracy. It's, it's you know, references to, you know, new rail here and new dams there and like new the coal stations. Way, the other. I mean, it was just, <laughs> it's increasingly they do this. But, you know, in a sense, that's kind of, that that has a, a Trumpist resonance too, I think, in a lot of ways, that sort of economics, you know, where you know, it's almost as if um, you, know, you don't need to pay much attention to, to um you know, the, the, the financial resources at your disposal, you can just build to do whatever you like. I'm going to bring back American manufacturing, mm. this sort of stuff. Mm. And there's an element of that that clearly is now running quite powerfully through the National Party, and that book was certainly an articulation of it. Yeah. So, so Morrison emerges from all of this chaos and, in a sense, becomes the agent of order, really. Uh, he, 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 um, he's neither from... The, the left of the party or the, or the kind of rancorous right that has, 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 has sort of emerged, neither is he thought likely to win the, the 2019 mm. election, which he then goes on and, and does and becomes the Messiah from the Shire and the miracle worker and all those sorts of things. He's not perfect, as you say, and, uh, you know, even even after that he, 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 he um, gets the Legion of Merit Medal from <laughs> Trump in 2019 after that, uh, that that visit we were just talking about, and of course has the the, the horror mishandling of the bushfires uh, over that 2019-20 summer. But in some ways, he's rescued, at least in a political sense, uh, by by the very quick following following up advent of the coronavirus. What was your sense of how he started handling that? Oh, distinct the- from how it's 
you know, where we can sit now and look back on things that worked. But he sort of got away with a few missteps. It did. I mean, I think it did bring out some of his bad instincts. I mean, um, clearly in, in, in the early days, he, I mean, he was perhaps never quite as irrational about all as Trump, but, you know, his impulse was to keep things open. His impulse was that we should just keep being Australians. That'll get us through it and we should do what we ordinarily do. And he was off to the footy. And, and so I think there was quite a lot of that um, early on, but... Um, you know, t- to be fair, some pretty uh, important decisions, clearly, particular, yeah, particularly around uh, international travel, um, uh, passengers coming into Australia were made in those early days. I think, you know, have turned out to be. Uh, I, I remember, of course, they were against a, a WHO advice at the time mm, too. So that's th- true. Th- there was, you know, some, yeah. some which, which ha- actually yeah. happened to be consistent with Trumpism because he didn't. He'd even defunded the WHO. Yeah. That's, that's, <laughs> that's right. That's but, right. But no, like I think, yeah. it, to be fair, it was very well. Yeah motivated that and um, what was interesting is the other thing that is so un-Trump-like at that moment really is the creation of the National Cabinet. If you if you compare the, uh, the, the, the utter balls up that has been the American handling of the, of the pandemic, um, cooperation between the, the, the federal government and the, and the states has not been a feature of it, yeah. whereas Morrison, I mean, admittedly, it's a more manageable idea here with, uh, you know, six mm. states and two territories, but Morrison said about that national cabinet quite early and it has been a very useful mechanism how long it remains useful and how long it remains so sort of streamlined those are other questions but it was about consensus and a kind of a a very singular focus on the challenge i think morrison deserves some credit for that he does and it's almost impossible to imagine a a, a trump um, even in more propitious circumstances being able to, to share to, power. Exactly. Yeah. And this comes back to a point, I mean, I remember we talked about this around the time of the 2019 election, the kind of leader that Trump is. And I, I've been over these very influenced by Melbourne political psychologists, and particularly Graham Little, who was a, a wonderful um, political psychologist down in Melbourne. And he developed a kind of typology of leaders, strong leaders, inspiring leaders, and group leaders. And characteristically, on the the, the sort of conservative side of politics, strong leadership is valued. You know, a Reagan, a Thatcher, a Howard, um, you know, they they model the man of steel kind of image and so on, the Iron Lady, et cetera. Mm. Um, Group leaders are more likely to come from social democratic parties or or radical liberal sort of politics. So uh, Bob Hawke um, would be a characteristic group leader searching for consensus, seeing, you know, the politics and relations of small groups being translated into larger ones. In Bob's case, I think it was the, the public bar really being translated <laughs> to nation. And inspiring leaders, I guess it might be a figure like Whit- uh, Whitlam or Pierre Trudeau or something. Yeah. The, the thing about Morrison is I don't think he's ever really um, modelled himself as a strong leader in in the characteristic way of conservative politics. I think his approach has been closer to group leadership. Mm. I mean, yes, it, it was all that, you know, freelancing at the 2019 election. It was as if, as if he was kind of running almost as a presidential type of figure. But well, you it, can't it, gainsay it, though. It worked. It worked. It right. did work. But I think it was kind of, it was almost tactical, really. I mean, I don't think um, it's characteristic 
characteristic of his his leadership to say that he's always presenting himself as this kind of strong figure. I mean, there are elements of it. I think, you know, he, he occasionally, you know, has this idea of, um, well, he presents as a father, but it's the daggy dad, isn't it, rather mm. than the kind of strongly paternal type of leader. Um, and I think it's much closer. His instincts seem to me, in terms certainly of everyday government, to be closer to that kind of notion of group leadership, that there are advantages to be had in the transactions that that, that are necessary in arriving at a consensus. And, and, you know, I'm not saying that to somehow defend him or to say that that's, you know, necessarily the only way of being a, a good leader. But clearly, you know, um, to me at least, it is a more attractive model than the the, the strong leader approach. And it, it certainly, I think, has been appropriate to the circumstances that have occurred during 2020 compared to the disasters we've seen in almost every country where you have this kind of strongman figure, you know, not just the United States, but, you know, I think of Brazil, uh, uh, you know, uh, perhaps even the United Kingdom, um, you know, so... Uh, All countries where populism has mm, been a strong element of uh, the yeah. political... You know, uh, sort of makeup there of, of, of governments. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Let, let me ask you this is a sort of final question because we're we're running out of time. But um, what to what extent do you put down? I mean, this is sort of changing gears a bit. But to what extent do you put down the difference? Like when you think about comparing Trump and American politics to Morrison and Australian politics as two sort of different sets of ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, to what extent can you say that that um, some of these differences are kind of cultural and structural? That is, we have a parliamentary democracy. That is a, by defin- definition, a more collectivist style of government. It's a more accountable style of government in the sense that the that the executive sits in the legislature every day. That Parliament's sitting and answers questions, or at least, you know, does a half half job of uh, pretending to. Um, on both sides, I should add. Uh, you know, both sides don't answer, answer questions, yeah. uh, except from their own side. Um, I'm just wondering, you know, is that is that actually a feature here too? Because, you know, one of the things that struck me as, as we watched the Trump, you know, this extraordinary Trump juggernaut roll out after 2016 was the sheer unaccountability of it all. You know, he, there was no, there's no opposition, there's no alternative government in waiting. Yep. You don't know who the alternative president is. You just don't have that kind of, and you don't have those kind of collective traditions about um, responsibility, about truth, about you know where the, observing mm. the traditions of the Westminster system. Yeah, it's a more media. I mean, they, obviously, the US has its system of checks and balances, but it's a system that we know can be gamed. It's a system we know has its frailties. Um, a few of them lately, and indeed, and. Whereas, as you point out, I mean, ours is a more mediated system. And one of the things that mediates it, of course, is party. It doesn't matter how, you know, what special relationship you have with the Australian people. And we've had prime minister after prime minister who thought they've had one. And usually the party gets around eventually to reminding them, well, you better maintain your special relationship with us or we'll get rid of you. Mm. And that, you know, you can or go... Or if th- they lose the special relationship with the people in a couple of polls, suddenly they're <laughs> I mean, Rudd was the classic case. He right. managed right. to... Yeah, yeah, Turnbull as well. But, I mean, Rudd is almost the paradigmatic case of this Mm. where he thought that he had this special – and read his – I mean, the first volume of his memoir makes this absolutely clear. He thought he had this kind of special relationship with the people that owed nothing to party. And, um, you know, the party didn't help him um, was was the kind of general thrust of of, of the way – the persona that he he developed. And – 
you don't get anywhere in Australian politics without a, a party. You can be as skilled in political management as a, as a John Howard, you know, during his prime ministership, and you still need to. I mean, that was one of his great skills: the management of the party. He, what do you call it? The Iron Law of Arithmetic. What do you call it? But you know, everything. Obviously, the broader party, but you know, those dinners with backbenchers, yeah. all that stuff that Howard used to do. Um, uh, you know, so however sort of exalted you think that the you know, presidential you think you could become, it's a much more mediated um, sense of, of power in Australia. I mean, again, this may be Morrison's skill too. I mean, think of the quiet Australians thing had, you know, that he, he you know, was central to the, the whole thrust of his campaigning. To some extent, was trying to do that. You know, mm. the notion of special relationship with this this group of people who were sort of out there. And, and, is, it, and is this the same as Menzies' forgotten people? It's, it's a bit like Menzies' forgotten people, mm. but to me, it seems very different from Trump's you know, sort of relationship to his base. Which is, isn't that about revving them up? They don't yeah. look very quiet to me. Mm. Um, it's, it's a diff- if, if they're both populisms, they're very different kinds of populism. You know, Morrison and a, and, and a Trump, and and it, it just seems to me that. Of course, the other thing yeah, I should have said yeah. this before. But the other thing is, you know, compulsory voting. You know, it's a critical difference, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Because yeah. you've got to rev people up in the US yeah. to get them to vote. They've yeah. got to be – got. I mean, that, there's two ways to, to get yeah. voters. You inspire them or you anger them. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or both. And you don't – yes, you don't need to do that here. Mm. So, I mean, I guess a lot of the differences with American politics, we, we tend to put down these days to – well, politics of other countries too, to Australia's very unusual system of compulsory voting. But I think it does have some of these kinds of effects. You don't have to get out the vote. So I think we can say at the end of all this that, um, that you know, there are Trumpist elements in our politics. There's certainly probably MPs in the parliament now who um, share a lot with, with Trump. Uh, but Morrison himself is more sort of founded in the, the, the tradition of Australian politicians, centred uh, you know, uh, derives from the middle, the institutional middle of Australian politics. He's a conservative. We know he's got that kind of um, Pentecostal aspect to him, which is which is a vaguely kind of American feeling mm-hmm. idea to a lot of voters. But he doesn't have those same sort of instincts or, or methodologies that Trump does. Yeah, or, or he uses them in a very um, tactical way rather than something that becomes characteristic of his whole political persona. I mean, clearly he he... he he clearly resent. He doesn't like. I mean, none of them like. I suppose um, accountability or being closely questioned by journalists or whatever. Um, Morrison does seem to really bridle at, at that. Um, but you know, I'm not sure that that's really Trumpist. I mean, no. I, I think that that's an aspect of his his political style, um, which I suspect has been there well before Trump was on the scene. Um, so yeah, look, I, I think there are elements of it. Um, but, you know, I guess the, the, the portrait so far of Trump that I've found has had the most impact on my image of him is the rather hostile one, it has to be said, of Malcolm Turnbull in, in his memoir. So, mm. uh, I mean... The narcissistic Mar- bully, as he described him. Yeah, I mean, it's not so much that. It was it was the the, the argument that Turnbull made that... that, that Morrison um, was constantly front running. Oh, sorry, yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah, I was yeah. talking about Trump. Oh, 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 sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, I was thinking of, of, of Turnbull's uh, image of Morrison. Sorry, yeah, yes, yeah. Oh, Turnbull's image of Morrison, where he, he presents him as someone who, um, you know, is able to twist and turn around political issues without too many looks back. Mm. And and I found that 
not a bad description, actually, of the way that Morrison does seem to work, you know, that there aren't too many causes. I mean, we know that there is this conservative Christianity, but if you look at the kinds of policies and issues that come up in federal politics, there aren't too many um, that he prepared to go to the wall over, I reckon. Um, and I think so far that's what his prime ministership has, has looked like. Yeah. And again, that's part of the moderating influence yeah. of our of our sort of parliamentary system, our party system, our parliamentary system, yeah. our compulsory voting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And agree. It's, and it's the centre has effectively held at least thus mm. far. Yeah, thus far. Yeah. Frank, it's been great talking to you as it always is. Look forward to having you back on Democracy Sausage when I can convince you to come back. <laughs> uh, and uh, thank you for listening. Uh, we'll be back uh, next week with uh, Democracy Sausage. Uh, until then, bye for now. 